Welcome to Overthinkers Anonymous. My name is J-Dog and I'm an overthinker. And currently I'm overthinking my buzz cut that I gave myself and how I'm not too buzzed about it. Um, <laughs> but I'm also thinking about like how weird hair is and how it grows from follicles in your skin. And like, where does the length come from? It's just so weird. You know what I mean? Totally, totally. Hair is very strange. Uh, should we introduce ourselves before we get into the hair thing? Yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, I'll, I'll go next. Um, hi, uh, my name's Silk Spectre, and I'm an overthinker. Uh, my name is Thasmia, or Smia for short, and I'm an ex-overthinker. That's Ooh. a twist. <laughs> ex- Hold on, before we go any further, what do you mean by ex-overthinker? Well, um, I think... What I mean by ex-overthinker is that I used to overthink as a default, um, but now it's like, A, I don't actually overthink a lot, and when I do, it's actually, like, intentional. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you've somehow just trained yourself to not let your overthinking habits get the best of you? Well, I guess what I realize is that overthinking, for me personally, is actually, like, an alarm system going off. And so mm-hmm. I've learned to like recognize the signals and like do something about it before it gets out of hand, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. That's very interesting. I guess overthinking can definitely be a response to like external stimuli or like just associated with the fight or flight system. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like the alarm, the idea of an alarm going off is like, it's almost like you're you're reacting to something by whether it's like rationalizing or trying to find an explanation for why something happened you just get caught up in these loops and then they then take you away a lot of the time right right like i like to differentiate between because i think overthinking is basically a form of processing and it's processing that's helpful and it's processing that's not helpful mm-hmm. so like when i notice myself like kind of going around in circles like I just basically see it as my brain is like desperately trying to find some sort of explanation or story for whatever upsetting thing has just happened and it's just like not able to. So I know at that point, like I need to go outside of my brain and find a different way to get the missing pieces of the story. Mm Mm-hmm. I saw you in a dream. You were standing at the bus stop. It was autumn, and the world hadn't gone to shit yet. But it was a cold, rainy day in downtown Edmonton. Windy too. Your hair was blowing in the wind, yet wet and weighed down by the water. I was going to call out to you from the other side of the sidewalk, but I couldn't make a sound. I couldn't speak for some reason. Then, all of a sudden, I looked to my left, and I got hit by a guy on a Segway. What a fucking asshole. And then I woke up.
is it just me or does anyone else feel a segue? A segue? I feel a segue. Yeah, go for it. Not to the hair or um, are we going to when you disagree entirely? But the moment has come. So we're talking about trying to find meaning and trying to find an explanation. And I feel like this comes up all the time in dreams. Mm. Mm, Yeah. Um, Dreams. Well, whoa. (laughs) Yeah. um, Dreams. What can we say about dreams, really? Like, are there random neural activations or dreams? For me, it's like, I'm just not that, I haven't studied my Jungian symbology enough to really decipher my dreams yet. Today I, mean, I had a dream that I was pregnant, and then I kind of uh, mean that I was like pregnant with possibility. That's like the farthest I've gotten in terms of like ooh. interpreting it. But like, yeah. I feel like it's challenging. I think it's a really rich area, but for me, mm-hmm. it's a challenge to interpret. Dreams. Are there two like stances, like knowledge-wise or scientifically, there are two stances on dreams? Like one is that dreams are full of rich with symbology and you know meaning. And, and the other that they're just random neural firings. Yeah, exactly. Are they are they just like random images and stories that your brain concocts while yeah. you're asleep, or the do way, they have something deeper? Yeah, the way I like to see it is that your your dreams probably are not your subconscious trying to tell you something significant, but I think there is some value in trying to decipher what's going on in your dreams. Because mm-hmm. through the act of actually reflecting on what's coming up for you, you can kind of come to some better understanding of yourself and what's going on in your head. So it's not necessarily that it's some subliminal communication and that there's all these symbols, but just taking that time to process it, I think that has value in itself. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I know that I've learned a lot about things that are anxiety inducing for me and things that I've needed to work through, through what types of dreams I have regularly. Mm-hmm. Mm. I think right. in my opinion is that it's like both. It could be like random stuff or it could be like a message. Cause I've had both experiences. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. for example, I've watched a movie then I have a dream about that movie. It's like probably it's not some deep message. It's like, Hey, you've watched this movie and now we're going to replay the movie while you sleep. But um, yeah, <laughs> but I've also yeah I've also had like those times when it like I've gotten like a message, and there's also like some I had like this example of something where like, well it's like the only time it's ever happened. But I had a dream about like a Team Impala album, and later that day I received that Team Impala album. I thought, no way! Yeah. That sounds like precognition. Yeah. <laughs> Which Team Impala album, by the way? Currents. Oh, that's my favorite Team Impala album. Coincidentally, but uh, yeah, like that sounds like a synchronicity and uh, precognitive dream that you might have had. And the thing is, I would have never made the connection, but I was keeping a dream journal at the time, and then that's how I saw the connection. Otherwise, I would have forgotten about it. Yeah, journaling is super cool. We had to do it for a psych class that I was in, and actually, in true overthinker fashion, I pulled up some notes from that psych class from undergrad, and um, yeah, I remember. I believe it was only a week or two weeks perhaps that we were required to keep track of our dreams and try to kind of interpret them or decipher them in some way. And I noticed that I became much more aware of my dreams and my recall of my dreams got better. Um, 
and I think, yeah, it's just having that, that consciousness that what you're, what you're thinking about during the day and before bed, those things are going to come up when you're sleeping and it may not be significant, but you might be able to find something significant. Um, and just looking at my notes here, this is something I, I personally haven't really experienced a lot, but from Freudian interpretation of dreams, there's always that implication that, oh, it's all sexual symbolism. Mm -hmm. and also the idea that you're dreaming um, of your repressed anxieties and fears. And so while I haven't really encountered the sexual symbolism thing, definitely the repressed fears and anxieties come up mm -hmm. through, I think, recurring dreams for myself. Um, things that I haven't worked through usually come up there. Mm. I don't know about like sexual symbols. Like, are they just like veiled, like, you know, well, you know non-explicit or just straight up sex? Not so much just, just like, like, I think it's more like the train going through the tunnel. That oh, okay. Thing, you know, like the really hokey stuff. A banana and a peach together. And <laughs> on, on the table like basically just the whole intro of uh, Masters of Sex, if you've ever seen it. I haven't seen that. Oh, but, uh, great show. Full of sexual imagery or like sexual symbolism? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, what's, you know what's funny is, um, speaking of sexual symbolism or like, sex dreams I, I i had a dream that i was with a woman that i really liked and I, she was my girlfriend in my in the dream uh -huh. and like we were just hanging out and i think i'm pretty sure we made love so there's the you know check mark on the sexual symbol yep it's thing, but, it, but it's there sure I, I we were just having a moment and we were looking into each other's eyes and then i woke up and i was just like what <laughs> I was having such so a special moment with this person, and then I just felt like the rug had been pulled out from under me. And you know, I th I thought like, oh, I finally have a girlfriend. Like, damn, this is awesome. And then I woke up and I was just like, fuck. Uh, <laughs> just uh, reality just greeting me. Yeah. Disappointing. Well, I guess that's literally like the nature. dream. I guess it's just like it's yeah. showing you your aspirations, right? So. Yeah. Also, another funny thing about dreams that I've, I've noticed is that, like, I find that I just come up with really brilliant ideas in dreams. And maybe not, they might not all be brilliant, genius ideas, but some of them truly are. Like, when I write them down, maybe I write a, a passage that I really like for, for my novel that I'm writing. Or, um, and I look back at it, and I'm like, that's actually a pretty good passage. But, like, other times... I, I write a, write something in my dream journal and I look back at it and it's just total gibberish. <laughs> so um, it can go both ways, right? Yeah, yeah, it's a good point. Like sometimes it's like your subconscious is getting to work at problem solving something that you've been working on during your conscious time. Mm -hmm. Totally, yeah. Um, yeah, like I did have an example of that. Like I was coming up with a name for like this program that I was running and I couldn't come up with the right name. And then as I was sleeping, the name came to me. So Right. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, it's like the subconscious mind works over like over time, I guess, and it, it works in the background, like a, a background process in a computer, and it, it does a lot of processing beyond your conscious awareness. Uh -huh. And I feel like a lot of that processing happens during during sleep. I mean, I I know it does, but like maybe the connections start to like come together in the dream state or in the in the REM state, 
and show themselves to you. But the thing that I'm kind of confused about is like, you know, if dreams are supposed to serve a certain function, then why can't we remember them clearly when we wake up? Or maybe it's just supposed to leave hints and uh, not influence us too consciously. Yeah, well, I think not having a perfect recollection of your dreams can help you to continue to distinguish reality from dreams and from memories. Mm -hmm. Because I feel like if my dreams were, if I was able to perfectly recall my dreams as if they actually had happened, which sometimes I can, but um, it would be a lot easier to get them mixed up with your actual memories. So maybe it's partly for that reason, but also I don't, I don't remember exactly what the theory was, but part of that idea of like, you're, um, you're storing the information that you retain throughout the day. Um, your thoughts are just kind of solidifying and your neural connections are solidifying. And so that process can kind of happen behind the scenes and, you don't necessarily have to carry that forward into the next day. Like it's just random activity that's happening in your brain. Um, so the dream may not actually be important at all. It's the processes that are happening meanwhile. Right. Mm. Yeah. I've always been, I've always been fascinated with, with dreams and uh, to slightly move the topic forward. I'd like to talk about lucid dreaming. Mm-hmm. If y'all don't want um i i used to lucid dream a lot and it's just the most amazing experience um and but a lot of the time it's hard to control like i found it to be difficult to control lucid dreams while i'm in it um but the experience is unlike any other experience i've ever had have either of you experienced lucid dreaming um as actually i i always lucid oh, dream always when I'm so jealous. Really? Like without yeah. any effort at all, just accidentally. It, yeah, it's just the default. Oh, that's me. What? <laughs> the default. Yeah. Oh my god! So like every every night you you just wake. Well, I don't dream. remember my dreams all the time. But that's the thing. Like I. Okay. Like I actually have just recently started dreaming. I'm like remembering my dreams like this past week, but I I go for long stretches without remembering my dreams. So. Okay feel yeah. like that's associated with like any changes in your lifestyle or your diet um you know what i haven't actually thought about it deeply but you know like i've been on break and i've been some things i've been doing differently it's like because something i've been playing around with is my my routine since i'm moving into being like self-employed and everything like it's really important for me to maintain my schedule correctly and i've been experimenting with just kind of intuitively going about my day rather than being like, okay, I got to get this, 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 and, do- and this done. Like I kind of go moment by moment of like, what am I, what am I feeling pulled towards? And that seems to be like working really well, actually. Hmm. Um, so maybe it's about that. I don't know. I've also been like uh, eating better. I could do that too. Who knows? Right. Okay. On the complete opposite side, I would say I'm super jealous. Um, my dreams are never lucid. They're incredibly vivid but they usually consist of me having absolutely no control whatsoever to whatever's happening to me. And I mostly have nightmares and I believe a lot of my dreaming is fueled by my antidepressants. Fun. Um, So I have wildly vivid dreams. And as I said, mostly anxiety fueled nightmares, 
Um, I have a specific set of recurring dreams that I have. I have anxiety related school dreams like five times a week easily. Oh. Where I'm, yeah, I'm late for class. I don't know where my class is. I lost my schedule. I don't know what class yeah. I'm taking. And then usually there's a part of this dream where I realize that I actually was enrolled in a class that I forgot about and now it's the end of term and I have to catch up and for some reason it's usually like an art class or something and I'm like why why how did I forget that I was in this class like how is that even possible and I I tend to think that it's when I feel like I'm not putting enough of my energy into my creative outlets and that's where mm -hmm. I feel like I'm neglecting my artistic side and that's why I'm like missing this class so that's my interpretation of it but it's obviously still like underpinned by this general anxiety around school and and just perfecting think school is like so traumatic for people we don't even realize it it's super common sure. i believe that's one of the top top anxiety dreams or nightmares for people and it takes them to perform sometimes it's more like oh, you come to school and you're in your underwear or you're being bullied or something. So it, it can take on different forms for sure. But for me, it's always like around lateness or forgetting or, you know, just being lost in general. Um, but the other interesting recurring dream I have that I had a lot more as a kid, less frequently now, but I had another really interesting one recently um, is surrounding the whole concept of the end of the world. And I was really, really obsessed with like Armageddon just the whole destruction of the universe as a child because why why not just be a super morbid kid um, <laughs> so my nightmares were frequently around this idea of like the sun imploding and sucking the whole universe into it and just this overwhelming despair and I don't remember too much detail of those dreams growing up but I have one that was super vivid and then I have one that I just had like a few nights ago that literally could have been a full movie, if not like a Netflix series, because there was so much detail. Maybe you should pitch it. I, I might. I might do that. Just write it down and pitch it. It was so interesting, though, because it was such an existential dream for me because I had such a limited time frame that I was like informed that the world was going to end. And... I was basically told it's going to happen today. So <laughs> figure out what you want to do with the rest of the time that you have, because you're going to die. And I was like, Oh my God, like, what do I even care about? What, what is important to me? What do I want to do with the rest of my time? Like, do I, I want to travel. I want to do things that actually require more than a couple of hours. So it was just such a weird thing. And I'm like, do I want to get a tattoo? <laughs> do I really want a tattoo? No, it's not that important. I guess I won't get a tattoo. And there was even one part where I was like, maybe I'm going to just like stop being a vegan for the rest of this time. Like I'll cheat and I'm going to have, I'm going to have some, I wasn't even going to have meat. I was just going to have dairy. And then I'm like, you know what? No, I, I'm committed. I'm going to die a vegan. Like these are the thoughts that I'm having in my sleep. And the, the very, well, not the end, because there was an afterlife component too, but we're not going to oh, go. Oh, wow. Yeah, it was wild. I, I full on died and had an afterlife. In <laughs> That's season two, isn't it? Yeah, it's season two, exactly. Damn. Um, oh, spoiler alert. <laughs> but there was a part where I was like, 
okay, well, I know I'm going to die soon, and I want to die reading, so I need to pick which book I want to be reading when I die. Oh, wow. Which which book would you want? What's your Armageddon book, then? Um, I, Dream Me, decided on um, reading the preface of The Picture of Dorian Gray. Oh, perfect. And then reading as much of 1984 as I could. That's perfect. I- Wow. You picked an Armageddon book for the Armageddon. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, the, this. And then, yeah, the preface of... Um, I love it so much. It's so good. It's, it's like a literary diss track, isn't it, to his critics at the time? <laughs> to his detractors at the time? I think so, and yeah. At the very end, he's like, all art is quite useless. Mic drop. Yeah. Yeah, love it. So good. Um but yeah, what are, what are your recurring dreams aside from school related ones? Um, honestly, that's like the only recurring dream I have, and it's not the same one either. So like, that's like literally the only one I have. I actually, like, I, I know Jonah can go into what his recurring dreams are, but I'm curious if any of you have had recurring dreams before, and then have, and then they've stopped. And, and if you know, like, what actually caused you know what's, what's funny is um, the only recurring dream, oh, the, well, not the only one, but one of the recurring dreams that I can remember that stick out in my mind is when I was little, uh, I visited a theater in my dream. And the theater had kind of like marionette puppets and almost like silhouettes, uh, like silhouettes on a screen uh, that were casted by uh, marionette puppets for some reason. And I just remember classical music playing in the background and it being a very atmospheric, moody theater. That's so And I remember going there multiple times uh, when I was younger, but I, I, I've never had that dream again since I was young. And uh, other dreams, I, I've been, I remember flying. Like when I, whenever I get lucid, yeah. um, the first thing I do is try to fly. And oftentimes I, I do end up flying, but I can't control the environment, as I said earlier. But okay. Here's another uh, maybe interesting uh, wrench to throw into this whole dream conversation, but um, astral projection is something I feel like I might have experienced if it is a thing. Oh, wild. The idea that there is an astral plane that is populated by like extra dimensional beings and your extra dimensional mm-hmm. self essentially or like your astral body and um you can walk around this environment and it's essentially like a very to me the way i perceived it it's it's a colorless version of reality and it's also a warped version of reality but it might just be a very you know stable lucid dream um but i've i've found myself walking around my house like a black and white very colorless lifeless drab version of my house and uh i end up i end up um either doing weird shit like going inside of a mirror or going outside and then flying or like walking around outside Uh and the outside environment doesn't look anything like in real life which is interesting but uh yeah i don't know if it is astral projection but it sounds like something out of stranger things yeah yeah, I think. Like um, the, what is it? The upside down. The upside down. Is that yeah. What it's called. Yeah, that's what it's making me think of. Um, yeah, I think mm. I think that is the idea that they're they're oh really referencing in Stranger Things is astral projection, and I think Insidious does it 
uh, to, uh, is about astral projection as well, or the astral realm. Oh, I see. Like based on my friends' accounts of astral projecting, that does sound okay. like it is yeah. astral. Like I, I tried it, but for me personally, like having to go outside my body, like it freaks me out too much. Like it's just very, I'm like a very, like. I don't know, like, I just really am comfortable with uh, being in my body right. and being grounded. So, like, being inside my body is just, like, it feels very weird to me. Yeah. Actually, it's interesting because I was actually thinking about that earlier and being like, hmm, should I try astral projecting? But I'm like, oh, but I don't feel like it. Yeah. it I don't feel like leaving my body today. <laughs> right. Um, it's funny because um, I've, whenever I experience astral projection or lucid dreams, it's usually, or I think astral projection, it's usually... Uh, when I wake up in sleep paralysis and I end up trying to force myself out of my body. And I was able to train myself to do that a couple of years ago, which is why I've been able to have multiple astral projection experiences. And, but it's it's super weird and super like you tell this to a, a scientist and they'd be like, you're crazy, man. Yeah. Um, it's not, it's not, it's not observable it's not something we can study so uh -huh. but it's also not falsifiable necessarily yeah yeah it's only something you can be that can be experienced yeah I guess. it's a subjective like phenomenon i guess i'm gonna rein things back in because i i cannot lose the dream i can't ask or project and i also have really limited control of my body in dreams so one of my recurring nightmares, or I guess like a, a part of my recurring nightmares, is that I can't run or I can't punch. Like I have to fight and I can't physically throw a punch. Um, and I actually mm. I had that dream for a long time, for years. And when I was an undergrad, I started doing kickboxing and I stopped having the dream because I realized I could punch. Uh, whoa, that's cool. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> That's a good example of how you stop mm -hmm. at recurring dream. Yeah. Do you have um, any physical limitations? I mean, aside, like things that you would normally be able to do in your real life that you aren't able to do in your dream. Not that I can think of, no. Honestly, that kind of reminds me of Avatar and how like they can't bend. <laughs> oh, cool. Um, running. I can't. Sometimes I try to run in dreams and then I can't run. It's like I'm. Uh, in molasses or something yeah. or underwater yeah. trying to run underwater it just doesn't that. work so do any of you yeah. experience that like you know in inception when they talk about the kick and you're falling out of the chair oh yeah you get that like when you're trying to fall asleep and it like jerks you Sometimes. away um like when you're sitting up you mean or... um no even if you're laying in bed you ever get that sensation and you just like your body jerks and you kick and you like you had that sensation of falling, like physically falling as you were falling asleep and it wakes you up. Oh, yeah. Hypnagogic yeah, sure. jerk or something like that. Okay. Like, I, I haven't heard of the hypnagogic jerk, but I, I do know hypnagogic imagery, which is just like random patterns that you see, right? Like visuals that you see behind your eyelids. Oh, yeah. Or hypnagogia. That's what hypnagogia is. But uh, I have experienced a hypnagogic jerk before and it's... Uh, it's quite funny when it happens. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, unless you're kicking somebody I've that you're in it. bed with. And... I've done it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and does anyone, does anyone sleepwalk? 
I think I I have before, but not that I know. Uh, <laughs> no, not regularly. I don't think so. I've only slept walk when I've been really, really stressed. And usually, oh. it's Dude. where I've wow. actually like started enacting motions that I would be doing in my job. So I was working at a cafe at one point, and I was really, really stressed at work. And then at night, <laughs> I would start dream unloading dishwashers and like oh, wow. coffee cups under my mattress. And yeah, there's definitely a strong link between stress and dreams. Yeah, for sure. I think sleepwalking is pretty rare, yeah. though. So that's a pretty big deal. It's, I think it must be... Um, hereditary my mom is a big sleepwalker and my brother wow do you guys have safeguards like to keep people from walking inside the house <laughs> um, no actually um i don't know i i guess we just have good they had good self-control with that but uh, my brother did have one incident he was actually in spain and uh, for a soccer tournament, and he sleptwalked out of his room and locked himself out Okay, for for one, hold up, pause. Yeah. I thought for a second that um your brother was in Edmonton and then woke up in Spain. Oh my god! <laughs> Just like walked all the way to Spain. Really dramatic. He a flight to the airport, <laughs> boarded a plane, yeah. all in a dream state. That would be amazing. That would be oh quite a god. Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah. We'll we'll rein it back a step. Um. Yeah. No, he was physically in Spain while awake. Went to. <laughs> Still in Spain, slept walked yeah. out of his hotel room. He was still in the hotel building. He just walked into the hallway, but door locked behind him and oh. sleeping in his underwear. So <laughs> he he had to make his way down to <laughs> the concierge desk and ask for a key. But assuming that they were Spanish speaking, he just started gesturing randomly, trying to indicate that he needed a key, and eventually it dawned on him that this person did in fact speak, speak English when they just simply said like, Oh, you need a key. And he's like, Oh God. Yeah, please. please. Wow. So yeah. He was <laughs> safely returned to his room, but yeah, he's had a number of sleepwalking incidents. My mom's a uh, yeah, veteran sleepwalker. Um, lots of sleep talking in my family too. My sister's a big sleep talker. Actually, my cousin sleptwalked so bad. He actually, had to leave his um he was doing like military training and they kicked him out because he was sleepwalking wow yeah oh what that's like a that's like a no-go you're not I allowed guess. to be in the military if you sleepwalk i guess it's like unsafe or something <laughs> <laughs> wow I mean, I guess that makes sense. It's still, like, such a random, like, requirement. Yeah. No, no, no flat feet, no sleepwalking. <laughs> um, but guess what? I found a segue. Oh, segue. Another segue uh, to talk about mental health. Ooh. But um, first off, story. Well, the segue is the story, is the story. Um, I'm going to talk about a psychotic episode that I had. I was in West Edmonton Mall, and I thought I was sleepwalking. Or I thought... I thought I was experiencing a lucid dream. And like the thing about the psychotic mind is that you literally, you could believe anything. You could be under any kind of delusion. And this psychotic episode was just absolutely insane because I was doing parkour 
in West Edmonton Mall after hours uh, when it, everything was closed. I, I thought I was auditioning for a film. I specifically thought I was auditioning for the character of Nightwing mm -hmm. to be uh, the DCEU Nightwing. Specifically, I thought I was telepathically communicating with, you know, famous directors and they were telling me what to do. But plot twist, this was all happening in reality. And uh, yeah, that's just uh, what I was reminded of. Uh, this is a brief version of the story. I don't feel like going into it too much, but. <laughs> yeah, totally fair. Um, that's mean. Wow, that's. I'm yeah, glad you yeah. didn't hurt yourself. But just so the listeners know, um, I don't think I've disclosed this yet on this podcast, but I have disclosed this on uh, Thousand Years podcast. But I'm bipolar, type one, and I was eventually going to disclose this anyway in a future episode that I'll be recording with somebody else who I won't name right now. But um, yeah, uh, what do y'all? think about that <laughs> well i mean when you talk about that it kind of makes me think of like my maladaptive daydreaming disorder which is like i don't know if you guys have heard about that but that's for me it's like actually pretty mild compared to how severe it can get but basically what it involves is that like um it's basically when someone at the severe end of it, it's like someone spends more time in their daydreams than they do in reality. And they're more invested in their daydream life than the reality. Like for me, it's not like that. It's just like when I have like a straight thought of like going into like a daydream or like something that would be really nice. Like I basically automatically like run. Like I have no control over it. I just start oh. running or like, um, yeah. Or just like jumping around and stuff like that. And it only lasts for like a couple of seconds, but like, yeah, I've had that for like quite a while after my life and it doesn't really affect my life that much except in the case of like sometimes I'll like bump against the Could thing you and like scratch what, myself. What this is called again? It's called maladaptive daydreaming. Okay, I'm disorder. surprised I haven't heard about this before, but I feel like Yeah, it's not super well known, but um I feel like I yeah. might have experienced well, okay. this before. It sounds I don't know, it sounds familiar to me. Um, right, but yeah. like just the idea of daydreaming and getting lost in your daydreams and getting lost in your thoughts, almost to the point where you, it seems like you're dissociating from reality, maybe. Right. Yeah, it's not, it's like I'm still in reality in a sense. Like, it's like you know, if, if you were to like think of like, oh, that'd be cool if I got. Oh this right, and you just you think of it. Kind of get lost in your thoughts. So like, like I'm, I'm aware of reality, but my body just kind of just automatically starts like. Mm -hmm. I don't do it in like public like for whatever reason like I know that like I shouldn't do it in public right like it never happens in public it always happens like that. the privacy of my own home um and the themes are usually of like yeah like getting like for example a lot of daydreams I've had is like saving someone's life or like I don't know getting some kind of accolade or whatever like the theme is like similar in the sense of just mm -hmm. like some kind of validation like what i figured out because it's like people who, who have it on the severe end they're usually like hot they've experienced like some kind of trauma and me like my trauma is that like i just didn't receive mm -hmm. enough validation growing up so it's kind of invested in like having an alternate daydream situation where i'm getting like, the validation oh, interesting yeah i also hadn't heard of that before um sounds like quite distressing um 
Well, it's not super distressing. It doesn't, yeah, it doesn't actually, I mean, I think it would be distressing if it's like, if you have yeah. it more on the yeah. extreme side of things. Like it's like, it's called maladaptive daydream disorder, but for me, it's not technically maladaptive because right. I can still do my activities. Right. Right. And... daily life too much. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. Yeah. Like, but for me, it's interesting because it's just kind of like looking at, it's kind of, except for a while, I, I never understood it. But after like the past year or two, I've kind of delved into psychology and like inner child stuff. And then I've, it's finally clicked mm-hmm. up like mm-hmm. why I have this. Um, so now it's just like, for me now, it's just like, okay, it's kind of indicating like an unmet need that like I should like delve hmm. into like explore. It takes a lot of self-awareness too, to even determine that or to even know that about yourself, I guess, to, to gauge that, what you need from yourself, I guess. Yeah. For sure, yeah. Takes a lot of uncovering. Yeah, um, takes a lot of like introspective work that a lot of people don't want to do. I personally, I love going into like the deep dark shadows, but I do it's understand that for it, a lot of people, like for, for the uninitiated, it's yeah, it's scary as hell, and it's like un- and, let's talk yeah, about that. Sure. Let's talk about digging into your darkness, maybe, or is it shadow work? Yeah, I think shadow work is related. I think it's up to the, for me, shadow work specifically is there's parts yeah. of ourselves that we don't want to look at or parts of ourselves that like we're ashamed of or that kind of thing. But I think darkness could be like, could encompass mm-hmm. a lot of different things. Yeah. Like um, it can be totally a subjective judgment. What is a dark thing, right? About yourself. I would say so. And that could totally yeah. be shaped by your upbringing, the kind of morals that are imposed on you, your religious background. Yeah. Right? You start to Indeed. develop For a sure. sense of what should, um, what defines a good person and what kind of attributes you're supposed to have and what things you shouldn't have. And yeah, I think that can totally lead to how you view yourself and the sort of things that you feel ashamed of. And even if you've overcome those kind of patterns of thinking and you're outside of those boundaries now it can be even difficult still to overcome uh those negative feelings toward yourself yeah right right well i think like purposes of keeping something in the dark is that you don't have to feel those feelings or deal with it i think like a lot of us are afraid of feeling negative feelings so it just stays in the dark and usually the reason why we do that is because if we looked at it we would feel bad about it right and um I think it's just like it's always like the initial phase of diving. Yeah, and I think the, the ego plays a big part in the reluctance to look into those parts of yourself because, like, maybe it's partly also self-preservation of the ego of like not mm-hmm. wanting to see yourself in a certain light, not wanting to see yourself in a negative way. Um, yeah, it seems like the ego plays a big part in the resistance. <laughs> Yeah, and I kind of want to speak to two things. Like one, like um, Belinda's point about like it's heavily dependent on like historical context and upbringing and stuff. Like I kind of thought that was an example of, you know, like the Victorian era or even like maybe a century ago, like the sex shaming, right? And like how people felt. So and like if you like masturbated, you had to get good sent to like this reform school, and like how that was like such a dirty secret and something to be such ashamed of. So that would be something like an example of something that's like in the shadow 
So we don't want to look at or deal with. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I think like, I guess the other point is, um, actually, okay. I kind of forgot come, If it comes back, then let us know. I'll probably come back to <laughs> What were you saying before? Um, Jonah? I think that just left me too. <laughs> Too bad there's no rewind button on a, a live recording, but um, what we were talking about, like, not like the ego being, uh, yeah. Oh, okay. I just remembered actually. So I think like, it's not always a bad thing to the self-preservation instinct. I mean, I think sometimes we're just like not ready to look at it and it would destroy ourselves. And I think the right things come up when we're ready to look at it in a sense, because I can think of times when like, I wasn't ready to look at something and I knew that if I did look at it at that time, like I would have been really hard for me to recover. But like after having some more tools under my belt, it, I could look at the things. So yeah, I don't think it's always a bad thing that we're yeah, not looking at. In general, those ego preservation instincts are, are possibly there for a reason. It can be really hard to come to terms with, with some things about yourself. And I know like some aspects of social psychology where you have a tendency to perceive yourself as above average. Like everyone wants to think that they're above average at things, but that's statistically impossible. Um, but we do that because we want to feel good about ourselves. And yeah. we like to see ourselves in the best light possible. And I mean, of mm -hmm. course, we all have those moments when we're looking in the mirror and we just don't like what we see, whether it's internal or external, but um, at the end of the day, the ego does want to protect itself. Yeah. Such a cute little ego. So cute. Adorable little thing that wants to maintain its own positive image. Mm -hmm. Well, if we think about it, it's like a positive image yeah. is related to survival. Like, because we... We like I think like I kind of tie it back to validation and love is like as a young child like that meant that we would are close to our caregivers and close to our caregivers right. meant that we would survive because we'd get food and stuff. So it's like all so it's like when the ego is interpreting it as like if I get approval then I'll live. It's like literally when we're young that's the truth like we'll live we won't die because we're still connected. And so whatever we got praise and validation for we're gonna stick that into our self image and whatever we didn't get validation and praise for, we're going to repress and like not look at and try to like extricate mm -hmm. ourselves from. That's really interesting because now I'm thinking about it too. And I haven't done a ton of child work, childhood work through um, like visiting with psychologists and stuff like that. But just on my own reflection, I've always felt like there are some aspects of my identity that I really cling to because they're things that I was validated for growing up really pertaining to school and academics. And so I've always had trouble with being on school breaks or not being in school at any, at a given time. And it took a long time for me to be able to find other parts of myself so that I could detach from that image. Hmm. But it's so easy to just cling to those, those little pieces because they're things that you were overly validated for and myself at least I feel like there was just such a strong contrast between the things that I felt shameful of or was in, got in trouble for and in in opposition to the things that I was praised for 
So I always feel this very unstable attitude towards life where I'm just uncertain of like, did I do good? Did I do bad? Like someone tell me, someone tell me how is, how am I? And I just, I don't have confidence in my self perception. Right. Right. And, uh, uh, do you want to say more about confidence in your self-perception? Yeah. Like, like you're just not if, sure where you stand. Okay. So for example, let's say I've done, I've written essays a million times, but every single time I submit an essay, I'm in my back of my mind being like, oh, I totally messed it up. I'm so bad. Like, there's no way I'm going to get a good mark on this, but then I'll get it back and I'll do fine and everything's good, but I'll go through the same process again every time. Like, it's like, I can't convince myself that my efforts or my abilities are actually sufficient. Right. Also knowing you, uh, a million mm. essays is hardly a hyperbole, is it? Oh, oh. No. <laughs> <laughs> Literally a million. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, but I, I was going to say like, as egoic, ego-driven creatures, we are constantly reaching for things that will define our identity, I think. Like, we're constantly looking for things to define ourselves by. Like, and there, these are often external things that, and we seek validation from these things too. Like, whether it be like a degree or an honor certificate or a trophy, a sports trophy, or, uh, you know, even so, so, so however many likes on Instagram or whatever it is, getting published in a poetry publication something like that it's like we're always looking for these external sources uh to derive our identities from mm -hmm. when really like our identities should just come from inner space maybe yeah and or I from from, from like uh, yeah go ahead higher, uh, i don't know like higher things like uh well i don't know what i mean by higher things but like from from things that are greater than just, I don't know, not trivial, but like just these little things that won't last, I guess. I don't know. Does that make sense? Totally. Um, I was just, I started thinking about uh, some discussions I've had in social psychology class pertaining to the cultural differences when it comes to self-perception and how we identify ourselves. And based on the studies that we were looking at, um, it seems that North Americans in particular tend to focus more on our individualistic roles in terms of like, right. I'm an athlete, I'm a student, I'm, uh, what else, what else are you? Like the funny kid or the jock or whatever, like you associate- right. I'm hot, I'm this, I'm that. <laughs> yeah, and it's all about you. Um, as where I believe it was more like East Asian cultures, um, specifically Japan, if I remember correctly, um, there was more of an emphasis around your role in connection to others. So it was like, I'm a mother, I'm a sister, I'm an auntie, I'm a friend. Okay. Which I think is really fascinating and changes that whole dynamic of validation because you don't really have a a measure for saying like how good of a friend you are i mean obviously you can assess it in some way but it's not something where you're receiving like a medal or a plaque saying like you're the best friend keep on being the best friend 
Mm -hmm. Right. Right. That is really interesting to think about for sure. And I guess it's like more holistic because I think, I think like for me, my personal arc with this is kind of getting to unconditional love and acceptance. So it's like, it's like, yeah, like as Jonah said, it's like, I'm undoing tying my words to these external things and just finding it inherently and like accepting myself in all conditions, like whether it's like quote unquote good or quote unquote bad. Um, and like, yeah, for me, like I, I've talked about this a lot. I know Jonah's heard me talk about like matrix morality, which is attachment to good and bad, attachment mm -hmm. to being a good person and like attachment to not being a bad person. And for me, totally collapsing that and like embodying both the good and bad qualities in the context in which it serves and not like just totally shunning a quality if, it, if I consider it to be bad and considering that it might have its own merit in certain situations. Like that's been like pretty huge for me. So I think like with the whole um, tying your identity to like who you are in relation to others, I think like, of course there can be some shops with that, but I think that's kind of getting closer to inherent worth. Like, cause like if you're, who you are as a sister is related to who you are in, on the inside. So I think it makes sense. Like that, that'd be like a less stressful position. I don't know what the yeah. study said, but. And I, I think, think actually sense. they talked about dreaming in that study as well. No kidding. And yeah, I mean, we're bringing it back full circle. Uh, full circle. Many circles, like multiple circles. Wild. And what they said was that North Americans were more likely to have first person dreams. Whoa. And the East Asian population in the study would have more third person dreams like more like a narrator view like removed from like like a video game almost yeah like, well, like first person shooter and you can switch perspective yeah yeah that's that's the, that's my understanding of it anyway oh yeah i've had both kinds of dreams and i've had it where it's switched in the middle of my dream so i don't know what that says about me somebody changed your settings in your uh oh, in your mind apparently yeah that's the only thing i can control maybe well actually i still don't have control of that it just happens <laughs> at will so i've never had a third person dream that's a completely new concept to me oh. like so you're you're behind uh, yeah i don't think i have it either i think it's cool so belinda you experience like switching between perspectives or do you just see like kind of an omniscient narrator like where i'm overseeing myself in the dream right okay so you you're you get like a view of your the back of your head or something or like yeah sometimes sometimes it's like that sometimes it's more just like i don't even know like just a random camera out of the corner of the screen i don't i don't know that's so strange Actually, now that you say that, it's like maybe I've had that too, but I've never really thought about it. So next time I dream, I'm gonna. It might actually dream. cause you to dream a third-person dream. Maybe just thinking. Just by thinking about it. <laughs> I have a, I have this vision for the future where we can, I, and I feel like I've seen this in a sci-fi uh, media piece, uh, but like, or like a piece of uh, in a cartoon. I think I can't remember which cartoon. But essentially, you choose what to dream uh, before you go to sleep. Oh. That'd be really cool. 
Well, I feel like you fixate enough on something before you go to sometimes you can make it enter your dreams. I know if I've been reading a lot, I'll sometimes dream of the characters and lines from the book. Yeah. There's so much to, there's so much we don't know about dreaming. And I just don't know why it's not a more respected field of psychology or like a more studied field of psychology. Like, I feel like we're currently in a, uh, era of science that's very rationalistic and very i guess materialistic or yeah materialist in, in terms yeah, of uh, yeah. where it's more emphasis on on the physical and perceivable we can see empiricism yeah totally yeah. but there's so much there's so much to to dissect with dreams themselves and mm-hmm. they gotta mean something i i mean it's i don't know there's too much on dream interpretation and i've had too many just crazy dreams to believe that it's just random neural firing for sure and it's so satisfying when your dreams actually follow a plot line like there's an actual story there yeah because a lot of the time i've had dreams Mm. where it's it's almost there it's like kind of decent but midway through the dream whatever characters that I'm interacting with, they'll change or the place I'm in will change or some aspect of the storyline will just flip entirely. And Sounds then, like a David Lynch movie. What's that? Sounds like a David Lynch movie. Exactly. Lost uh, Highway in particular. And, <laughs> it'll make sense to me when I'm in the dream. Like, I won't question it. It's like, yeah. it's like what they say in Inception when they're saying that, like, there's things you won't notice when you're in the dream. Like, you'll just ignore it. Yeah. And, oh, that's another thing, too. Have you ever looked at, have you ever tried to check the time? In your- oh, that's, that's um, a technique that I use for lucid dreaming is, uh, or reality checks. Yeah. Like looking at watches or looking at your phone. Oh, it looks super weird. Yeah, your phone screen or your watch, they always look super weird. Usually either either won't say the time or it'll, it'll yeah. look really wonky or you look away and then it'll be a different time. So that's mm-hmm. one way that I use reality checks to... Yeah, and I, I haven't done it deliberately because, like I said, I can't lose a dream, but it's just, like, yeah. happened by chance in my dream, and it'll be like, oh, that was super weird. Um, but, yeah, usually when things are a little bit wonky in my dreams, I don't notice them until I wake up, and then I'm like, oh, well, that was really cool, and it all made sense, but now it doesn't make sense. <laughs> like, none of that makes any any logical connection anymore, so forget right. that. <laughs> Um, but yeah, let's, let's talk about mental health some more, um, to to tie it back to another circle. I I wanted to ask, uh, youth Osmia more about how you stop overthinking or how you manage to, I guess, harness your overthinking habits and use them to your advantage and your, to your own benefit. For sure. Yeah. So so, like, for a while, like, overthinking was a default for me. Um, and I, like, I think sometimes I would journal, and that was a good way to, like, kind of stop the loops in my head and, like, put it on down on paper. And I think the reason now, looking back on that, like, why that works is because writing is actually an embodied process. Like, you're using your body in a way to, like, get the thoughts out of your brain. And so that helps to like bring insights and gaps into the story that might not hmm. otherwise be clear. And I think like it got really bad for me, like when I experienced like gaslighting in a, in a relationship and like, I was really like, 
I was really um, invested in this relationship and I didn't, I couldn't see like some red flags because of like codependency and just kind of wanting to see the best in the relationship. So I would, part of me would filter out the information of like the red flags. So eventually like it kind of got bad enough that like things, situations happened and like, and like, I just couldn't make sense of it. And then I would, and that's when the rumination got really bad for me. And then I kind of realized like, why I was ruminating. I kind of read this article about like how rumination is basically the brain trying to come up with a story. And then it clicked for me that like, I needed to find like an overarching mm. narrative for it. So that, so when it clicked for me, like why rumination happens or like for me, like I differentiating rumination from overthinking and that rumination for me is just like going on and on like and on and loops. like not coming to any insights. Yeah, thought loops are just like the same subject. It's like coming up over and over again, right. like every day kind of thing. And so, yeah, I kind of, then once I realized like why I was doing that, then I could like kind of get to work of being like, okay, my brain wants to figure out what's going on. So I'm going to do, I'll like talk to other people, see if they can fill in the blanks or like get to read some information and like kind of come to some answers. And so that, that's what helped me in that situation. And then like I attended... Um, Vipassana, which is like a, you guys might be aware of it. It's like a Buddhist meditation, silent retreat, retreat, and it's all focused on body sensations. And so from there, I kind of um, learned a somatic awareness and a body awareness. Like I learned how to tune into like my gut and my heart. And I kind of realized that like being in a dissociate, like a, that overthinking is in a sense, like mm -hmm. being like super dissociated, like from the rest of your body. And so when I kind of gained a sense of like bodily awareness, it, it kind of gave me options in the sense of like, like my mind isn't the only default. Like I can also turn into my gut awareness if I wanted or my heart awareness. So having those options kind of helped me be able to toggle back and forth between the different modes. And if you, if you guys don't know, there's actually neurons in the heart and the gut. So it's like, they're valid forms of like, uh, perception that's i thought it was cool, cool to learn that that's really cool. but um yeah <laughs> yeah so um so yeah like learning some somatic sensing which is it's actually called interoception like learning how to sense your internal feelings um and sensations um it kind of gave me some options for processing like maybe i wanted to process something through my gut rather than my brain and that make them to some different insights and so um yeah so i guess basically i and for, since then, like, whenever I've been, like, playing a thought loop over and over, I kind of realized, like, it's, like, triggering something deep within me. And, like, it's, it basically means, like, I have to, there's, like, a problem that I need to solve. And there's, like, something, like, is not right. And I need to, like, figure out what it is. And so, but then I differentiate that between, like, overthinking and just, like, normal processing when it's just, like, I'll let my mind kind of, like, do its thing when I just kind of want to explore thoughts and come to kind of get a new perspective or get, get, get an, gain an insight. And I think that's like healthy. I think we're all, all of us here are like analytical by nature and we have powerful brains that like to analyze things. And I think it's healthy to kind of like let it do its thing, like, mm -hmm. like in a reasonable fashion. So yeah, like if it, I, I think that's fine as long as it's like not like going on and on in a loop, then I know it's like actually leading me to right. an insight. Mm -hmm.
yeah, so I guess in a nutshell, it's basically kind of like recognizing if it's in a thought, if it's going around in circles, that means there's a problem and I need to like get my problem solving skills, which might be like journaling or talking to like somebody else who can reflect back my truth or what have you, or like kind of um, confront the situation. Like for example, like, um, yeah, I had like this fight with my sister and it was just like, it was like really unfair the way the fight unfolded. Like, and I just like, after we had the fight, like something was just like sitting, not sitting right with me after it. And I was kind of like ruminating about it. Then I realized like the problem was like the way it was went about was just like kind of like really, it was like really, it was kind of like, it had like a twinge of like toxicity and abusiveness to it. So like, that's why I was ruminating about it. So then like, I talked to my sister about it and that's like what mm-hmm. solved the situation basically. Um, so, yeah, so basically just like realizing it's an alarm system and like, and then being able to have gut awareness and heart awareness so I could choose which mode to be in. And yeah, that's, that's how it I reminds it me of the idea of programming and reprogramming your mind computer like using the analogy of com- mm. computational technology towards your or applying it to your your nervous system and your brain and you can essentially just reprogram yourself via practice and different you know techniques like cognitive techniques and like mindfulness techniques and just just awareness really mm-hmm. like be like taking being able to take a step back and observe the patterns that you engage in uh unconsciously otherwise like it's it's really cool and uh yeah it's a your, your brain is a powerful computer and uh it's it's all natural too that's the coolest thing about it yeah, yeah. it's like trying to detect patterns and like make meaning of things right so like i think understanding like that's why it's doing what it's doing and trying to harness yeah. that power and for the, the pattern detection pretty big deal. and analysis like subsequent analysis is relates to evolution and like that was that's a survival mechanism um that, that the alarm system is is, is also a survival yeah, exactly. thing like a survival related mechanism that's built into us yeah mm-hmm. yeah so i think like so yeah like sometimes we feel like it's running against us but For it's really sure. trying to help us survive so utilizing how it works but I, to yeah sometimes we need us, to yeah. take a like a administrative role and be like hey this isn't a survival situation you know what i mean you're kind of overreacting you need to chill out and uh let me do my thing right like sometimes your your brain is just fulfill, fulfills its functions but the functions might work against you depending on the situation totally like and the same thing goes for anxiety where it's just it's there for a reason it's yep. that fight or flight response your body is telling you hey something's not right here mm-hmm. but it's maladaptive like it's not actually useful to you in that set of circumstances because maybe you don't have control over it like there's nothing you can do but your brain is freaking out because it's like you know but you need to solve this like you need to prepare yourself for whatever's coming but it just doesn't work in the context of the modern world like 
it was designed to help you escape from a predator or something. Right. And it's like, okay, yes, I have an assignment that's due a month from now. I do not need to be panicking about it right now as I'm trying to go to sleep. Like, I do yeah. not have to get up and go look at the rubric again. I don't need to go and, like, sort out my schedule and plan out my day-to-day. -day. Like, no, just go to sleep. And it's so weird because mm. at the same time, I feel very attached to my anxiety because I mm. fear that if I don't have it, then I won't be motivated. Right. So for me, it's always been like, right. no, this is the thing that drives me to be productive. This is why mm -hmm. I get things done. And this is why I don't leave things to the last minute because I just never could. Like, I could not tolerate that right. level of discomfort. As where some people who have anxiety, procrastination is the response that they engage in because there's that level of perfectionist expectation that they're worried they won't fulfill. So they keep putting it off. Right. But for me, it's more like, okay, no, I need to start this right now and I need to work on it constantly. And I've gotten better. I, I've shifted into more of a mindset where I recognize that I've limited time, limited resources, and I can only do the best that I can. But that anxiety is still there. And yeah, go ahead. Right. Um, yeah, so I think like the avoidance, like by procrastination, that's also like related to conditioning where it's like you gain like a positive reinforcement because like you put it off so you don't you momentarily like don't have to stress about it. So you get like the positive reinforcement of like not feeling stressed yeah. momentarily, but then it like comes back. Um, yeah, like I think, so yeah, you're talking about like how we are in our modern day are interpreting things that are not, not going to kill us as killing us, therefore producing anxiety. Like the deadline is not going to kill you. We're dead in your it. Brain thinks it's yeah, exactly. Your brain has the <laughs> same response, though. Like. Oh, I am. I'm getting a message. Hold on a second. Yes, this is Agent Blue. Agent William James Blue Sky Black Death. Yes, one in the same. Doctor William James Blue. Yeah. What can I do for you? You have a message to relay to me. You have a message you'd like me to relate to your viewers. You want to just send me a voice message and I'll, I'll I'll play that I'll play that back. Cool. Sounds good. seeds in a garden, then you beg God for his pardon. You're swept through the light and dark, then with your hands you make a spark. Set flames to the world, it's on fire. God begins to wonder if you're a liar. Run, run away, run, run away now. Come and stay, come and stay now. God don't know how to play now. Go escape into the fray now. Fall from the sky and land nowhere. Know that you're living God's prayer left to live in the musty and dark abyss nothing in particular you shake your fist cut the darkness with my knife all i have to ask is what is life yeah 
yeah it's so interesting how like we're so programmed to like be fearful of consequences and that that's like what drives us but like yeah and you know when i was talking about like having the more intuitive morning routine or like not morning routine but just daily routine it's almost like deprogramming myself from like oh, i gotta get this done because otherwise or else and it's more like okay i'm gonna it's like a toward motivation rather yeah, than like a away from thing. like the difference but, between like, being a high achiever and a perfectionist is essentially underpinned by that that dichotomy there that you just described that idea of pursuing something moving towards something is that idea of being a high achiever as where perfectionism is this fear of failing and this avoidance behavior really interesting way of looking at that and so like yeah like but if you're going to tie it back to like how we got validation it's like invalidation equaling survival it's like in a sense like if grades are our validation and validation is survival then like it makes sense to me that like we're going to interpret grades as totally a life or death even situation. if it's just the death of your identity that's still that's threatening right and in in a context where you don't have a lot of other i don't know like threats to your life it makes sense that that's something you would fixate on and i know that Maslow's hierarchy has been essentially like debunked it's not it doesn't hold up but I still buy into the idea that we still, um, we set up a bit of a ladder in terms of how important things are. And if you have a bunch of your other needs met, you have food, you have water, you have a house to live in, you have a decent network of support. And at the top of that pyramid, you have this idea of like self-actualization and identity and that whole egotistical sense of, of who you are if all those other things are not a concern for you, then yeah, those things do seem kind of life or death. And those anxieties will come up more and those existential thoughts will be more prevalent. I kind of look at it as like the need for validation and the need for like food is like kind of equated as equal in the brain. Like, per like personally, that's my framework because it's like, it's like if unless you have the connection to the caregiver i.e like they're giving you attention and like seeing you and whatever what have you like if you don't have that that pretty much means mm -hmm. the same as you're not having food so like i think it makes sense that brains are going to equate it as equal as basically a tiger is going to maul us or we've lost our food source yeah. if we don't get that validation yeah, attention. i'm curious I, I don't know i don't feel like i don't think that there's really going to be a study that isolates that exact situation and looks at how people can be deprived of validation and what the impact is in a, in a really controlled setting. But I can imagine that it does have disastrous consequences. Yeah, like, you know, I think her name was Jeannie. Do you guys heard, heard of Jeannie, who was like the kid yeah. who was like abused by her parents? And like, yeah like and you know you know like what happened like as yeah. she grew up and it's like i think because she, she, she like well she basically had like a lot of developmental disabilities i think she also became what i don't know if you remember if she was blind or not because she just didn't get like no she wasn't blind but like it's kind of the idea of like she had food and whatever but like she was like strapped down and like not given any attention and then she she grows up having like a lot of like 
um, like, I guess, uh, mental disabilities and like not being able to function in a lot of normal ways, even though she was born with like all the capacities. And so I think like that need for like attention is like, and also like the babies like in the orphanage is dying prematurely, sudden inf infant death syndrome. John Bowlby actually studied that. That's how he kind of came to, he was like the, the um, founder of attachment theory. And it, part of it was because he was observing like all these kids like dying in orphanages who had food and had shelter, but they just didn't have attention. Yeah, I think that can apply to animals sometimes yeah. too. I've like just in doing some reading because I have pet rabbits, um, I'm looking into what I need to provide them in terms of a um, satisfying and engaging home environment. I encountered some information that was basically saying like rabbits can die of loneliness. Like if their bonded rabbit died, they might die shortly after. And I'm like, oh my God. Broken heart. That's so heartbreaking. That's so sad. Yeah. And poignant. But um yeah, uh this is kind of relates to uh what I talked about with my friend Calvin on uh, another podcast that isn't out yet. Oh, it might be out by this point, by the time the listeners are here, are, are listening to this podcast. But uh, we talked about um, how attention is the new limited resource of the 21st century. And it's it's the it's a hot commodity nowadays uh, to try to get attention from other people. Like whether it be it, like if you're a creator or just posting a Facebook status and trying to gain likes which is kind of like a validation, social validation currency or like a social currency of yeah. sorts. Um, but yeah, it's, it's very interesting to, to make that connection uh, to that idea that uh, attention is something that we all crave and that makes us feel validated and feel good about ourselves and makes us feel seen. Mm -hmm. And I, I acknowledge that in my own self, like a big part of the reason why I love creating art is I want attention. Maybe like I, I acknowledge that. And uh, it's not that weird. I don't think. <laughs> I think it's super normal. And I think that that's something that is really defining our generation. Yeah. You want to be seen. And I think this is a good way to transition into a uh, topic that you brought up, Silk, um, before we recorded this podcast, but we could talk about social media mm -hmm. and how, like, I don't know, it, it seems that, and this is the third podcast in a row that we've talked, that I've talked about TikTok, um, but it seems that a lot of the culture on TikTok is about trying to gain attention and clout and you know, doing these silly dances and wearing skippy clothing and trying to be as funny and memeable as possible mm -hmm. in order to gain more attention. What do you all think about that? I'm not on TikTok. I've only seen a couple of videos here and there, so I can't comment on well, TikTok. Well, like social media Is that what you're general. asking about? It's yeah. not, not necessarily TikTok, but... Uh, don't have so, a TikTok, so I, I've just seen yeah, yeah, a smattering of videos that have been sent to me. But yeah, I agree. I think a lot of it is people just 
trying to gain that public eye. Like they want to be seen. Um, I think essentially, yeah, I think I do think there's a lot of potential Mm -hmm. for there to be valuable content for certain voices to be heard. But then again, the whole concept of TikTok is like working the algorithm. Right. It's about feeding you exactly what you want. It's just like the whole echo chamber concept incarnate, right? So Yeah. The app itself is designed to hook your attention for as long as possible. Yeah, by just feeding you more and more and more of what you like. Yeah, exactly. It's characteristic of all social media, but maybe more so with TikTok. Um because it's not necessarily like, oh, I have these people that I follow and I'm just seeing what they're posting. It's more like, here's just a bunch of content that has been like custom tailored to your interests and will make active like meta commentary on the fact that it's trying to appeal to someone like you. Mm -hmm. But yeah. Yeah, it's kind of like it's like just endlessly feeding like the void yeah. inside. It's like giving you more and more, but you're not nourishing you. Like I don't know. I I see it as just like a manifestation of like human problems, like in a new form. Like we're always like whatever era we're in, like people are gonna try to get like their needs met. They're gonna try to get validation. Maybe our generation or the new generations need more validation because we've had less of them growing up and we need to get like like longer work days yeah we also live in a new media landscape too because say in the past for the boomer generation they just had radio and tv and they didn't see themselves on radio and tv that it was mostly reserved for the you know stars and the late night talk show hosts or like the radio hosts and all those famous people right and actors like professionals but nowadays we are the creators and consumers of media and we get to see ourselves on the screen too. And uh, it reminds me of the, um, I, I don't know how related this is, but it reminds me of the line from the preface of the picture of Dorian Gray, where uh, Oscar Wilde talks about how the rage of 19th century romanticism or something is, is uh, because of Caliban not seeing his face in the mirror or mm-hmm. something. Yeah. And, totally. uh, I don't know how, how related that is, but yeah, I, I love idea of like looking at yourself on on a screen and you know or, or not seeing yourself on screen and being raging at that like why am i not being seen by people why am i not getting attention i'm special i'm this i'm that and i think that there's also a window there for this whole concept of like who's not being seen who's not being heard and now having that opportunity to step onto that platform and represent people who aren't typically seen or heard um, and how that can encourage more people to step up, like when they see representation of themselves that they normally wouldn't see. Um, Because yeah, more traditional forms of media that are, I guess, confined to celebrities, there's a very narrow definition of what that looks like. And through social media and through these different platforms where we're actually the content creators, you can see more variety. Mm, yeah, that's a really good point. Like, 
there is like a lot of positive benefits of social media like i know like for people of color like the example of like not seeing ourselves represented like that's like a really big thing and i think like it affects like us growing up to not see ourselves represented on the screen not seeing ourselves as the heroes or like having like our own our own storyline and i think like for me i've noticed that i had like a lot of this programming of like um i i just noticed that like seeing a lack of diverse media growing up definitely like <clears throat> impacted me like i remember because like, i'm a writer and like the first stories mm-hmm. i wrote would always have a white protagonist and like i didn't notice that like how ingrained how deeply ingrained it was and i think like a part of me deprogramming from that is actually putting my instagram feed with a lot of like dusty people so i like, see more representation yeah, of the people who look like me this is so, like another like, rabbit hole i mean so, yeah. are you all down to go down this rabbit hole for maybe another 10 to 20 minutes i'm down be maybe our, our last little yeah, destination sure. before we wrap things up <laughs> but yeah. um i love the idea yeah, that sure. um well i I, I resonate with the idea that um, the media has like culturally influenced my perception of the world and like my perception of what media should be and what kind of representation media should have. Uh, like for example, with my novel that I'm working on, um, my character started off as, you know, white, I believe. And um, eventually I thought, I'm just going to make them raceless. I'm just going to make them ra- racially ambiguous because they live in a utopian future society where race is irrelevant because everybody's mixed. And uh, then I decided, you know what? Um, even if they are mixed, they're going to have predominantly, uh, they're going to be predominantly, they're going to look like one race over the other, one ethnicity over the other. And I decided to make two of my main characters, Asian, because um, Asian men aren't well represented in Western media, unfortunately. And um, I feel that, you know, if I can't see myself or my own complexion on in, in the media that I consume, then I'm going to create media that represents me or represents people like me. And um, I'll do it on my own. I don't need the approval or the, you know, I don't need permission from, you know, Hollywood executives to write a book, right? Or like from a from a publishing company to write a book. I'll just do it myself, and I'll, I'll self-publish myself if nobody will publish my book, right? Like mm. I, we're creating. I'm we're in a an era where it's never been easier to create our own media. Yeah. And in that case, I it's never been easier to represent myself. I guess my my own people are, you know, people that look like me. <laughs> Mm, yeah, for sure. I actually had a similar experience where, like, my book was the character was first white, then I changed her to East Asian, and I, 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 like now I'm writing stories where the that Desi people are the main characters. But I think if I wrote her as Desi, it would have hit too close to home, and it would have been hard for me to write. So making her not have my background was actually helpful in terms of having more free range to write it without right. like triggering myself like yeah um let's talk about let's talk about the writing process in general because we're all writers here and um i, I don't want to like 
y'all can share what y'all want to share about your accomplishments. I, I was almost going to say like, oh, so-and-so wrote a book and whatnot. But um, for me personally, I, I'm writing a, a novel called City of Dreams. And it's something I overthink a lot. I, I find myself, you know, to tie it back to another circle that Dazmia mentioned earlier, um, the idea of receiving accolades. I daydream about receiving accolades for City of Dreams. Like, I daydream of reviews that I could get. Like, oh, this is groundbreaking science fiction, literary science fiction in the realm of 1984 and Brave New World and so-and-so and so-and-so. Like, I daydream about that. And that also provides resistance for me to even sometimes, even when it comes to putting pen to paper or finger to keyboard, sometimes I'm like, I can't live up to my own expectations mm -hmm. um, or my own, my own desires for what I want this book to be. Cause I don't feel like I'm at the level of, you know, writing that I need to be in order to make the book that I want to make. But recently I feel like I've been getting there or I don't know, this might sound egotistic, but I feel like I am at that level now. And it's just a matter of putting the work in and but in the past this this is definitely something that has held me back um this I idea of getting too attached to outcomes getting too attached to um again the the possible things that people will say about your work or how it will be received i think it's sometimes it's better to just make the work itself without thinking too much about how it will be well, I mean, it's it's impossible not to think about how it will be received, but don't let that, it's best to not let that influ influence too much uh, your work process. Mm -hmm. um, I personally don't really have intentions of writing creative fiction or really any lengthy piece of work. Most of my writing is shorter little pieces and honestly, mostly just editing, proofreading for other people's writing, um, which I enjoy a lot. Um, I just don't really feel that impelled to write my own work. Um, I don't know why. Maybe I just don't have my story yet. But I did help someone write a memoir, essentially used their handwritten notes to compile it into a story. But again, back to overthinking, I I never really publicized it a lot. I, I have it available on Kindle on Amazon, but I was just like, I don't know if it's that good. Like I didn't have a lot of control over it and I felt a little bit rushed because I was going to be starting my master's program and I wanted to have it done before I started. And I was like, okay, I've got to, I've just got to get this done. And so I just never really talked about it much. And it was just like, okay, it's available. See you later. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. Like the process of creating it and then the process of like sharing it and marketing is like so different. And for me, luckily I've been able to like separate out the two. The, the way I wrote my book was basically, I wrote it over the course of three years and I kind of wrote it in like, 10 minute chunks here and there i didn't really i wasn't really intending to write a novel i just was inspired to like write like the intro 
and then like I know Jonah is familiar, but I, ho- I used to host like these get your shit done sessions. And I started in high school. And the reason I started it was because like, all my friends were artists who never did their art. And I ran those sessions. Those were sessions where we get together um, and work on our creative projects. Yeah, or just work on anything. It's just kind of like a social work so session. So I can stop having my recurring dream uh, about <laughs> my art class. If you don't over Zoom, maybe. <laughs> yeah i mean totally i mean we like it they're not running anymore but maybe we could do like a 2.0 so like yeah so i had like the little excerpt and then i just like in the sessions those sessions i would just kind of like work on it a bit more until i had enough momentum that i would like work on it on my own um in 10 minute checks here and there and like i kind of allowed the story to take me where it wanted to go in a sense i didn't necessarily have a plot line and then after it was a, after it kind of revealed its its momentum to me, then I was like, okay. Then I kind of shaped it a little bit, and that's so that was a like cool just to like kind of let it go where it was. But in terms of like, but then in terms of like marketing it and publishing it, like I think I published it in 2019, and like luckily I didn't have to do like a lot of heavy promotion for it for like my community to like to really show up for me and like support it and support the book launch. But like, the thing was at the time I was really, I, I was really attached to having success. Like I wanted to have success on my own terms, but like I was really attached to success for the wrong reasons in terms of like, mm-hmm. I wanted validation from my parents. I wanted to feel good enough. So I ended up kind of warping like, like the book process, the book launch process in a sense. Like, I think I think I kind of burnt myself out, like trying to, cause I, I basically gave myself a deadline to like, cause I, I had it pretty much done. I just had like maybe a few tweaks, but I was like kind of sitting on actually like publishing it and releasing it. Um, not for any other reason than just like, it was just like a task that was easy to put off. Um, so I basically gave myself a deadline to publish and and I had like a month. So in that month, like I copy edited it and then like designed the book cover and like, uh, went to, gave it to the printing press and everything and like uh, planned the launch party like it was a lot of work to do in a month and by the end of it I was just like really burnt out and I think like if I had more of like a if I, if my worth wasn't tied to needing to be successful I think um I would have been less burnt out from it like in a sense I would have had more towards motivation rather than running away from a lack of validation so like I never because I was so burnt out, like I never actually ended up like giving it the proper marketing. And that's something I've been actually meaning to go back to, to like kind of give it the proper marketing to like reach a wider audience. Right. By the way, did y'all hear that? That yeah. uh, feedback? Okay. I, that was my mic or uh, somebody else's mic. but A little bit. I, I think it was my mic. But anyways, sorry, continue. <laughs> Great. Oh, I mean, that's pretty much my story. Like, so basically, like, the writing itself was good, but then, like, once it got in terms of, like, success and, like, making money, mm-hmm. like, kind of got a bit warped and yeah, kind of burnt me out a bit. One, the whole idea of, yeah. like, how you deal with having, like, a hobby that you can monetize and how that transforms mm-hmm, mm-hmm. what kind of validation you're gaining from it, whether it's intrinsic or extrinsic. And the impact that that has on your enjoyment of the activity, as well as your likelihood of burning out. 
because at one point perhaps it was actually right right like rewarding in itself and it was actually maybe a bit therapeutic to engage in that activity but as soon as you attach um an extrinsic value to it in the sense that oh i could make money off of this then it changes your relationship to it yeah does it mm -hmm. yeah sorry is it is it change does it change it in a negative way necessarily or does it depend on the person i think it depends on the person i know for myself i think it's perhaps more on the negative side just because i i don't know i guess i'm, I'm an overworker so if something mm -hmm. is contextualized as work i i attach certain anxieties to it and certain expectations for myself um which makes it really hard to enjoy the activity that i'm doing Mm -hmm. uh, I have to make a really conscious effort to enjoy the process. Um, but I know a lot of people really enjoy doing their, uh, their hobbies as work and they're the fortunate few. Like, I think it can be really difficult to find, um, that perfect balance and combination of your interests and actually a source of income. Right. And it, it can be easy to make it like uh just to yeah to, to view it as a source of income rather than something that you do because you're passionate about it yeah and uh well like i i write on medium now and uh starting just this year actually just half a year ago i think maybe uh august or september was when i started writing on medium and i've made a solid five dollars off my article so far you know yeah um but um i don't think you know, if, even if I did make a substantial amount of money on my articles, and if they did go viral, it wouldn't really be, I wouldn't have been doing it for the money. The, the money would just be a reward, I guess. And uh, it wouldn't be my livelihood. Yeah. I, I don't know. It's it's just, I do what I do because I love to do it. Like even this podcast, I am doing it because I've developed a passion for, for it and I love to create and I'm a workaholic in that sense. Um, I just love to create and, and do work that is meaningful to me. Yeah. Right. And I think like that's the, what flow is. It's like you're working hard, but it still feels like play. And I think like that's like, I think, yeah, I think it becomes things feel like work when there's like this pressure attached to it. And pressure is like, oh, like if this doesn't happen, then or I have to get this on or else this will happen or else I won't right. get validation or else I won't make money or else I'll be better. So then it feels like work, but like, and then it becomes like, you know, more draining. But if you can bring the playful element into it and like not take it so seriously, not take it as pressure fully, then it allows like a yeah. flow to take place. And when you're in flow. flow, you're not overthinking. You're not, you know, you're not questioning yourself or what you're doing too much. You're just, allowing yourself to do what it is whatever it is you're doing and you're getting out of your own way your your ego is perhaps dissolving or taking a back seat and yeah that the the alarm system is just off right i've also had the opposite experience of like you know with the book it's like i was just doing it just for fun and uh, then like prospect of money came in and it kind of changed the relationship not to writing i guess but like to maybe the book process but i've also had the opposite experience of like um 
I mean, maybe that changed the relationship in like a negative way, I guess, in that instance, because I had tied like so much validation to it. But like, I've ha- also had like a more positive experience of like money changing things in the sense of like, it was my coaching practice. Like, and like with that, like I have to like write posts a lot of the time to like kind of uh, bring out the information and like share my services and stuff. And like a lot of that writing I wouldn't have done otherwise, but like discovered that like I actually really like to do mm-hmm. that kind of writing, like showing healing tips and like self-development stuff. So it kind of like is bringing forth this side that like, yeah, that I, I probably wouldn't have tapped into or maybe not in the same way or as like diligently. So I guess there's that too. Like sometimes the, I guess I think maybe how I look at it is like the universe, because I have like this relationship with the universe, like a spiritual relationship and maybe it doesn't resonate with everybody. But for me, I look at it as like the universe was like, okay, like you want to like do this for a living because it's fun and you want to make money doing it. And like, okay, so here's what you have to do. And by, by it's kind of like a carrot. It's like, it's showing me a carrot and I'm like doing, following the thing to get to the carrot. But like, as I'm, doing it i'm actually kind of enjoying the process and figuring out like oh it's not just the care mm. i actually i like love this universe talk uh as both of you probably know i have this mantra dance with the universe mm-hmm. yeah it's just about it's just about radical radical acceptance and uh just going with the flow and and not fighting what is but just going with it and stepping in accordance to what has happened, what the universe throws at you. And uh, that's the best way to go about life, in my opinion. So this this podcast is brought to you by Radical Sessions, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I wish we had more time to uh, talk about the universe and our relationships with the universe because this is getting into like spiritual talk. Oh yeah, that's and, a whole uh, other episode. That's a whole other can of worms and a whole other episode. But I I feel like we covered a lot of good stuff today. We talked about dreams and lucid dreams to. Um, overthinking about hair and hair growth a little bit we talked about that briefly mental health mental health anxiety um talked a little bit about you know sleepwalking and uh how i slept walk through a psychotic episode mm-hmm. and uh what else did we talk about <laughs> over to the writing process eventually yeah writing process and uh how money changes that and yeah this is a pretty good podcast Thanks for joining me. Yeah. Can you hear those footsteps? Okay. Um, yeah. Yeah. Any any final thoughts to wrap it up? Oh, for sure. Yeah. Go ahead. Are we allowed to do a plug? Um, yeah, if you are interested in like psychology and self-development, you can check out my writings at nerdforhealing.com. The four is a number four. Yeah, I highly recommend Dazmia's website. She's got a lot of good stuff and really cool insights and uh, dope writing style. <laughs> uh, 
Um, I'm also going to plug. Thank I you. have a podcast slash radio show on CJSR FM. That's 88.5. And it's called Shout for Library. So if you're interested in library issues, check us out. We have a yeah yeah it's just all of us so like, cool that there's a podcast a about library, library students at the u of a yeah. and yeah we just have a monthly episode where we talk about a variety of issues that pertain to libraries and um believe it or not there are a lot of issues there are a lot of social justice and inclusivity and uh censorship issues all it's it's a huge can of worms but yeah Isn't there like this this comic that's dedicated oh to like God. librarians and librarian jokes? Like, like I used to date a librarian and like yeah. <laughs> I am you know, on a, a librarian like <laughs> meme page. So I see some occasional funnies there, but yeah, I have not encountered this uh, this comic yet, so I'll need to please do. Um, yeah, I find out libraries is a pretty good podcast. Uh, I love the episode about cursed media. That was the first episode I listened to. Ooh, thank you. Yeah. Um, and CJSR is an Edmonton community-run radio station. That's yeah. also very cool. Yeah, it's all volunteer-run. Yeah. Um, yeah, so thanks for thanks for joining me, you two. I just, I'd like to throw out a quote to, to wrap things up today. Okay. I was just watching the, uh, the new... Olaf short on Disney Plus and and he says a line that I just found really profound even though it wasn't intended to be and he said I'm falling apart is this a skill or a flaw <laughs> wow I feel like are you sure it wasn't intended to be deep <laughs> it might be like, it might be but he was physically falling apart is this a skill or a flaw damn what does that mean <laughs> If you don't mind unpacking it for a bit. Confused. I think it's like ego death and like allowing yourself to to like lose your mind and like your self-concepts to in order to like bring in more aligned concepts. So self-destruction as a... Allowing yourself to be broken down. As a constructive process rather than destructive process. Or self... That's a contradictory statement. But... Oxymoronic. Vibe with it. <laughs> okay, well. Thanks for having us. Thanks for thanks for joining. Dog. Having us, J Dog. Peace. Yeah. Peace. Really fun.